Our Father, you are the one who oversees the times. You are the one who uh, oversees economic prosperity, and you are the one that oversees economic difficulty. You instructed Daniel to tell Pharaoh that there would be seven years of prosperity, and then there would be seven years of drought. And when that drought came, it affected everyone economically. Uh, you are a sovereign God, and you govern everything in the world and in the universe. Uh, the seasons, the seasons of hot and cold, the seasons of prosperity, and the seasons of recession, uh, even the seasons of depression. And Lord, so often, so often it's in the times where there is less that you have our attention. I think back to that study I read years ago about the Great Depression and the fact that until all those public works projects got off the ground, there was absolutely no construction going on in the United States except for church buildings. Church buildings were being built right and left in 1930 and 31 and 32. And because people were afflicted financially and because people were frightened financially, and in the 20s, in fact, we called them the Roaring Twenties. There was prosperity. It was the good life. It was the good time. People, uh, their hearts were diverted from you. But when everything was gone and when jobs shriveled up and the economy and men were trying to simply feed their families and wondering what they were going to do for dinner, the churches were full. In fact, churches had to build buildings to hold all the people who suddenly were interested in you. So we thank you, Lord, that you govern all of these things and you work to accomplish your ends. We also thank you for the promises you have made to your people. You have promised to provide for us. You have promised to take care for us. You told us, Lord Jesus, that you did not want us to worry about our lives. And there's a reason you don't want us to worry. We have a Father who has promised to take care of us. He, he knows what we need before we ask him, yet you tell us to go ahead and pray. And the reason you do that is that prayer is really not for you or for the Father. Prayer is for us. Prayer enables us to, to come into your presence. Prayer enables us to, to take the pressure off our shoulders and the worries and the anxiety and the care and cast it upon you. Philippians says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, even in times of economic drought, even in times of national breakdown, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You don't want us worried. You don't want us sick with worry. doesn't mean we don't ever think about the future. We're supposed to think. But there's a difference between thinking and having our guts knotted up with anxiety. That's not what you want for us. Thank you for our leadership. They're simply communicating, and we're thankful for the communication. Uh, work in each of our hearts, Lord. Uh, as has already been stated, that we might be sensitive to what you'd have us to do. We thank you that uh, we have the promises. We thank you that we have your providence.
There are other issues in our lives, issues that regard our families, that regard our, perhaps our jobs, that regard our health. Different guys are facing different things. We are grateful that you are our Savior, not only from sin, but from the issues of life. We have no other hope apart from you. We acknowledge that. We're here to hear from you. We are here to be instructed by you. I pray that you'll give tonight each guy precisely what he needs. Every day, Lord, we need you to meet our needs. Every day. We can't, stay, we, we can't literally take a step without you. You are the one that controls our breathing. We can't live without you. We can't exist without you. We acknowledge you. We acknowledge that fact tonight. And we ask you to give us massive doses of courage and encouragement as we study this great, great chapter tonight that brings glory to your name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When I was a young rookie pastor, I was um, 28 years old, and I, uh, I didn't know how much that I didn't know. I think the people in the congregation knew how much I didn't know, but uh, I wasn't aware of it. And you know when you're young, um, oftentimes you get a little arrogant, you get a little cocky. And God has a process that he takes young men and old men through who get a little arrogant and a little cocky. It's called uh, the process of humbling. I remember one night I was meeting with some guys, and, uh, oh, we probably finished about 8.30, and afterwards I uh, went to a coffee shop with a guy. We were just talking. Um, And back then I I didn't drink coffee. I I hadn't had a cup of coffee in... I'd had one cup of coffee maybe, maybe in my whole life. I just didn't drink coffee. But uh, it, it got real cold. It was in the San Francisco Bay Area, and it was cold. It was flat out cold. And we're sitting there talking, and he had a cup of coffee, and the waitress said to me, coffee? And I started to say no, and then I said, yeah. Yeah, I'll have some coffee. So she poured me a cup of coffee, and we're talking, you know, and I loaded it up with cream and sugar so I couldn't taste the coffee. And she came back around about, you know, 30 minutes later, another cup. I said, yeah. So we're talking a couple hours. I probably had four cups of coffee. (laughs) Never thought a thing about it. I had four cups of cream and sugar (laughs) with coffee. Never thought a thing about it. Went home, um, watched a little bit of Johnny Carson, um, went to bed. Couldn't sleep. I mean, I couldn't sleep. So I... uh, Picked up a book, read a book. You know, usually that nods me. Couldn't sleep. Uh, Picked up, I don't know, something else to read, a magazine. Uh, Couldn't sleep. Uh, Went downstairs, turned on Tom Snyder. You remember Tom Snyder? You old guys do. Yeah, Tom Snyder. What an arrogant jerk he was. (laughs) And usually he would put me to sleep within 90 seconds. And uh, I couldn't sleep. Uh, It's now about 3 o'clock in the morning. I can't sleep. And I pretty much read everything in the house. I went down and I went down to 7-Eleven. 
And I thought, maybe there's a Sports Illustrated out or something, and I went down. And I'm standing there at a Sports, at, at, at a 7-Eleven, nobody in there except the guy at the counter and me, and I'm looking at Sports Illustrated, and I suddenly found myself flipping through a Playboy magazine. And I caught myself and I thought, what the heck am I doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And I put that thing down and I went home. I finally went to sleep. And the next morning, uh, I got up and I told Mary about it. Because I didn't want anything to come between us. And uh, some guys that had influenced me in college, some guys I really respected, <coughs> I'd respected their walk with Christ and uh, their ministries, uh, two of those guys had recently gotten into immorality. And it scared me. So the next morning, I told Mary what happened, and I told her what I had done, and asked her to forgive me. And um, Then Sunday came, and I had to get up and preach. But um, I, I really felt a check in my heart. I, I, it was like I got up and I had an emergency brake. You ever drive with the emergency brake on? Um, something, something's wrong. And I was starting to preach and I was all prepared. I started into my message and I realized I needed to not only, not only did I need to get it right with my wife, I needed to get it right with the congregation. So I just stopped and I said, yeah, I gotta tell you something happened. And I just told them what happened. And uh, it was hard for me to do, but it was good for me to do. And um, I, it, it was a very humbling experience to have to look at a group of people who had called me to pastor and say, I was standing in a 7-Eleven the other night looking at a Playboy magazine and you've called me to come and try to shepherd you folks, and I can't even seem to shepherd my own heart. It was very humbling, but it was very necessary. Um, I didn't want to do that, but often it's the thing we don't want to do that we need to do. That's the next step that is ahead of us. In Daniel chapter 5, We've been going through Daniel 5, we've been going through Daniel, and we, we have continually run into this king named Nebuchadnezzar. Well, in Daniel chapter 5, we've got a king, but it's not Nebuchadnezzar. It is another king, and we're going to see a scenario that is somewhat familiar to us now, if you've been with us in this study, because seemingly through Daniel, what happens is you've got the king and then uh, there, there's a vision, there's a dream, and he calls on his guys who don't have a clue, and then they call on Daniel, and Daniel sets him straight. This is going to happen again tonight in Daniel chapter 5, but it's not King Nebuchadnezzar. It's another king by the name of uh, Belshazzar. Uh, a lot has happened when we get to Daniel 5. In, in Daniel 5, Nebuchadnezzar has passed off the scene, and Daniel now is roughly 80 years old. He might even be 82 years old. So a lot has gone by. A lot has transpired. Now, in Daniel chapter 5, 
you, let's, let's, let's read just the first verse just to kind of get out of the starting blocks hill. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. They'd actually uncovered archaeologically in Babylon these great dining halls that were in th this, this great palace uh, of the Babylonian Empire. And very easily could they fit a thousand people in for a great banquet, and this is precisely what is happening. Um, what, what's, uh, th this, this guy is celebrating. This guy is enjoying his power. By the way, this guy, Belshazzar, is young. Uh, he's arrogant. He's cocky. Uh, he thinks he has all power, and as far as he knows, he has all power. He is about, however, to get humbled. He's in a very, very dangerous position which he's not mature enough to handle, as we shall soon see. Um, we're going to see again in Daniel chapter 5, we're going to again see the sovereignty of God. If you don't like the sovereignty of God, you really shouldn't read the book of Daniel. If, if the absolute control of God bothers you, Daniel's not your book. If you're into the greatness of man... You, you don't want to read Daniel because the book of Daniel obliterates any idea of the greatness and magnitude of man or mankind. Uh, the book of Daniel is about the greatness of God. It's about the glory of God. It's about the sovereignty of God. It's about the majesty of God. It's the whole book. It's the whole book. And in sad times and sinking times, as Jeremiah Burroughs used to say in his little book on contentment, in sad and sinking times, the only thing that will bring you encouragement and the only thing that will give you hope and the only thing that will enable you to have peace and a sense of contentment is the sovereignty of God, that God is in charge, that God is in control, that God is working his plan that although things look like they're out of control and there's absolute chaos, everything is under control. Everything is under the authority. Everything. Everything. It's part of God's plan for the world to go insane. It's part of God's plan for the world to fall apart. It's part of the plan. If you know him, you understand that. And so when you see those things happening and you're rooted in the foundation of the sovereignty of God, you can keep your bearings. And you don't go insane. And you don't go crazy. Because you know that your father is working and you know that he's promised to take care of you and provide for you and your kids and your grandkids and he'll make a way. We've been studying this in Daniel, all right? Yeah. God is such a God. In fact, in Daniel 2... Daniel refers to him. He's the, he's the God of all wisdom and he's the God of all power. In 2 Kings, there is, you don't even need to turn there, uh, but in 2 Kings there is a passage that talks about a situation where God was going to do a miracle. And it had to do with uh, Jehoshaphat and the king of, uh, uh, the son of uh, Ahab. And God was going to do a great miracle where he, was, he told them to dig trenches because they were going to come under attack, and what God was going to do in a, in a supernatural way is God wanted them to do, to dig trenches, and then God was going to fill that whole valley of trenches with water. 
without using wind and without using rain. And what was going to happen is that God was going to send rainfall far off in the mountains. The water would then come down, flood the trenches. But it wasn't going to come through rain. It wasn't going to come through wind. And when their enemies came up, because the valley was now filled with trenches, and the sun was rising, it was going to look to them like that water was not water, but it was going to look like blood. And they were going to think that the Israelites had warred against each other and slaughtered each other, and they were going to come in and they were going to get ambushed. It was a miraculous thing what God did, filling those trenches with water. There's a phrase, however, in 2 Kings 3.18, the fact that God was going to fill that valley with water, not using rain, not using wind, it simply says this, this is a slight thing for the Lord to do. It is a slight thing. See, we read that and we go, that's unbelievable. And you read the whole chapter, and I don't want to read the whole chapter because if we get over there, we'll never get into Daniel. But it is a phenomenal miracle how God did this and faked those suckers out. And, and, and you go, that's unbelievable how he did not wind, not rain. And he fills the whole valley with water. I mean, it's flooded? That's, a, that's a unbelievable. No, no, no. It's a, it's, a, it's a slight thing. It's no big deal. Why? Because of the power of God. For him, that's, that's nothing. That's just nothing. What we're going to see in Daniel 5, we're going to see the power of God. And everything he does is magnificent. But in actuality, it's a slight thing. It's just a slight thing. Some of you guys are in situations of tremendous pressure. You're in situations where you find yourself... Uh, and you really don't see any way out. And you've been thinking a lot about this, and sometimes your thinking goes over into worry and anxiety, and you're trying to figure out how this is going to sort, and this is, you know, and oh my gosh, and how, 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 how can this ever work? How can this ever? Well, can I tell you something? It's a slight thing for the Lord. It is a slight thing. He's got power beyond your comprehension. And I'll tell you what, he doesn't even move, not, not, he, doesn't move a, he doesn't move a finger. He doesn't move a fingernail. It's just a, it's just a slight thing. I'm going to give you three slight things out of Daniel chapter 5. Um, number one, it is a slight thing for the Lord to turn the pages of history. Say that again. It is a slight thing for the Lord to turn the pages of history. When you read Daniel, he had already told King Nebuchadnezzar that there were going to be four great kingdoms. The first great kingdom was the Babylonian kingdom, was Nebuchadnezzar. But then there was going to be a weaker kingdom, and there was going to be a lesser kingdom. It was going to be the Medes and the Persians, and they were going to take over from the Babylonians. Now, interestingly enough, in Daniel chapter 5, on the very night that this guy, Belshazzar, the newest king, the youngest king, the arrogant king, this new guy, Belshazzar, he's throwing this big feast for a thousand of his buddies. He has no idea that that is the last night, not only of his kingdom, but of the Babylonian Empire. The Lord is going to turn the pages of history that night. And it's, he's celebrating. They got the Bud Light. They got the Crown Royal. They got the Jack Daniels. They're going for it. 
They're just partying. They're on the party level at Cowboy Stadium for 29 bucks. Life's good, life's sweet. They got the big screen. They got it all. Oh, they got a big screen, and they're going to see something on the big screen they've never seen before. And what they don't know is that it's about all over. It's, the page is going to turn tonight. Tonight. Oh, and by the way, for God to turn the pages of history, it's a slight thing. Uh, we get introduced to this in verses... Uh, one through four. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. He was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels. Now, I want to stop there for a minute because who's this Belshazzar guy? We were familiar with Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Nebuchadnezzar has died. And since Nebuchadnezzar has died, you've had a few kings in between. After Nebuchadnezzar died, uh, he ruled and reigned for 44 years. You had a, the next king was a guy with an incredible name. A guy, this next king, his name was Evil Merodach. What a name. Evil Merodach, king of the Babylonians. He ruled for two years. Uh, he was succeeded by a guy who murdered him named Neraglassar. He ruled for four years. He was then killed in battle. Then the next king was Label Soar Chad. Some of you, your wives are pregnant. You're looking for unique names for your kids. I wouldn't recommend these. He ruled for nine months. He was murdered by Nabonidus. Nabonidus ruled for 16 years. Now, here's what's something that's interesting about Nabonidus. Nabonidus, you see this king Belshazzar? Belshazzar is the son of Nabonidus. Nabonidus is still king. He says, but it says Belshazzar the king. Nabonidus was out apparently trying to occupy some other lands. He was at battle. He makes his son sort of a junior king, sort of a junior partner, makes him a co-regent. And it's his young buck son who is in charge while he is off apparently doing battle in some other countries. By the way, it's interesting the context, apparently, of this great um, um, banquet that Belshazzar was putting on on that particular evening. Because as he was putting on this great banquet and celebrating with his thousand friends, the city of Babylon was under siege by the Medes and the Persians. Now, why in the world would you be having a banquet when, when your borders have been broken and they are literally outside the walls? Well, because he was young and because he was arrogant and because he was cocky and he thought their defenses were so strong that they could not be taken. I want to give you a little context. I'll give you a little background from Larry Richards. He says, Cyrus now had the city of Babylon under siege. His combined army of Medes and Persians were just outside the city walls, and he was preparing to attack. Belshazzar, however, did not seem to care because he undoubtedly had been told that it was... Um, I lost my place. What's happening to me? I'm sorry. I just absolutely lost my place, and I wish I was smoother, but I'm not. Um, I'm starting to panic. I'm seeing double. Now I'm seeing triple. 
now I'm feeling great pressure because I still can't find my place. Let's stand and sing happy birthday to me again. <laughs> Here we go. I just found it. Belshazzar, however, did not seem to care because he undoubtedly had been told that he was secure behind the walls of Babylon. He seemed to believe it because he was proud and defiant. Now, why would he believe that he was secure behind the walls of Babylon? Here's why. Babylon was an armed fortress. It was one of the most fantastic and greatest cities of all time. Its hanging gardens were among the seven wonders of the world, Richard writes. The city was essentially a square. Each side was 14 miles long. If you set out to walk around it, you could walk 14 miles across the front, 14 miles down one side, 14 miles across the back, and 14 miles up the other side for a total of 56 miles. You've heard of the Great Wall of China. The city of Babylon was circled by two great walls. Now catch this. The outer wall was 311 feet high, 87 feet thick. You got that? And 56 miles long. That's what you call a wall. There was a road on top of the wall. It was wide enough for six chariots to ride side by side. There were 250 towers on top of that wall, and each tower was manned with troops. Down below on the outside of the wall was a canal or a moat. It surrounded the city and was filled with water. People crossed it on drawbridges. Huge gates closed off the city. There was a second wall inside the outer wall with more soldiers and another road that was used for rapid deployment of troops and supplies. The river Euphrates flowed under these walls. It went through the city and out the other side. It, prov it provided a constant supply of drinking water. Several hundred acres of land had been set aside for farming inside the walls. So if they were under siege, they could still farm. So how could they farm? How are they going to water the crops? They got the river Euphrates going right through the, through, through the city from north to south. They got fresh water. Vegetables and cattle were grown to support the inhabitants of the city. There was enough food and provisions in storage to last for years. Some scholars say they had enough in, they had enough in storage to feed the city for 20 years. On top of that, they could grow crops. Uh, this is why the guy was secure. This is why the guy was partying with a thousand of his buddies, and he's got the meat and the Persian armies out front. You know what? He's thinking there's no way those suckers are getting in. So he's partying. He's having a good time. So they, they're drinking. They're getting with it. Now, notice, if you would, verse 2. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders, and, and, and here now is a critical error. Here is a critical error of arrogance. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem. That was a big mistake. Because you see, those vessels were to be used in the temple, in Jerusalem, built by Solomon. And when Nebuchadnezzar came and the nation was taken apart, they took those utensils and those goblets and they took them back to, um, uh, to Babylon. But he's, he's, this guy's drunk. He's going to show off his friend. He's, hey, go get those, that stuff from Jerusalem. Now, the problem was this. Those goblets were to be used in worship 
to the glory of the one true God. Only. Watch this. They took the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar's father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might, his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem, the king and the nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank, watch this, four. They drank the wine and praised the gods, plural, of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. The goblets that were designed for the worship and praise of the glory of the one true God are now used to drink and toast the false gods of polytheism which don't exist. They rob God of his glory and his arrogance. So verse 5 says, suddenly or immediately. Do you ever sometimes wonder why God doesn't do anything? You see all the stuff going on and you're thinking, why doesn't God move in? Why doesn't God judge? Why doesn't God bring an end to this? Why doesn't God set these suckers in their place? Maybe it's just me. I don't think so. You know why? It's because of the mercy of God and because of the long-suffering of God. But there is a line. And when that line is crossed, suddenly, immediately, and they just crossed it. I want verse 5 which then takes us to the next slight thing, number two. It is a slight thing for the Lord to bring down a young and arrogant ruler. It is a slight thing because it is he who raises kings and it is he who sets them down. He's about to set this young, arrogant punk in his place. Notice verse five. They're drinking the goblets for the glory of God instead of God's glory to, to idols, to demonic spirits. To, it's, it's, it's taking God's glory away. So what happens? This is on the big screen. Runs from the 20-yard line to the other 20-yard line. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Huge wall. And there's a hand. Suddenly out of nowhere, there's a hand. And this hand is writing. There's no arm. There's no wrist. There's a hand. It is supernatural. It is a judgment. The response of the king and everybody in there is one of complete terror. And by the way, that was the sane response. Verse 6. Then the king's face grew pale. I love the understatement of the scripture. <laughs> then the king, your wife ever say to you, you know, you're looking a little pale. This sucker was looking pale. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him. And, uh, I love this, his hip joints went slack. <laughs> and his knees began knocking together. Um, literally, when it says his hip joints went slack, 
Literally, it's the joints of his loins were loosened. It was the appropriate response. <laughs> They'd never seen anything like that before in their lives. I love this stuff. This keeps me going. When you think it's all out of control, guys, it's not out of control. God's just setting everything up. There are people who are going to come into the fold and they're not in yet. Some are going to respond. Some are going to hear the gospel and respond. But there's going to be a day when it's over. Um, so now you got this hand, and he's writing on the wall. Okay, the guy soils himself, urinates on himself. Seven, the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. Now, we've been through this drill before. They bring in these bozos with all the PhDs and the pedigrees and all this and the councils, you know, and they served on this, and they're, you know, they're, you know okay, all right, fine. They don't know anything. The king says, any man who can read this inscription, explain its interpretation, I'm going to clothe you with purple, give you a necklace of gold, and you're going to be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why the third ruler? Because I'm number two and my father's number one. It's the best he could do was three. Uh, the king's wise guys come in, that's eight. Y you know, can they read it? No, they don't have a clue. The things of God are spiritually discerned. Nine, because they couldn't read it, Belshazzar is greatly alarmed, his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. All right, here's my third slight thing. It is a slight thing for the Lord to explain the handwriting on the wall. You know the phrase, the handwriting on the wall? It comes from this passage. People used to know that. People used to know the Word of God. But now our culture is such a secular culture, and the Bible is so foreign uh, I was talking to someone this week who was talking to a young man and uh, they, they were in the conversation. They said to him, um, you know the story of, uh, you know the story of uh, Joseph. And he said, who's Joseph? He'd never heard of Joseph. He didn't have a clue who Joseph was. Never heard the story. That's how far gone we are in this culture. The handwriting on the wall? The handwriting on the wall comes from Daniel chapter 5. It is a slight thing. The brilliant guys, the Ivy League educated guys, the guys with all the pedigrees, they couldn't make it out. It's a slight thing for the Lord to interpret the handwriting on the wall. So now, from 5.10, suddenly we're going to be introduced to Daniel. In, in, in 5.10, Daniel is introduced uh, the queen mother shows up and says, listen, you don't need to panic because there's a man who served your father. And when it says your father, it's the word ancestor. It's the word predecessor. Nebuchadnezzar was not his literal father, but he served Nebuchadnezzar. And, and you need to know who this man is, Daniel. In him is the spirit of the gods. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but he talks about Daniel and he talks about, um, in verse 11, King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your ancestor, 
appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. There was an extraordinary spirit in him, the spirit of God. So he is introduced to Daniel. Then, beginning in verse 13 through 16, this rookie, arrogant king tries to induce Daniel by offering him the robe and the gold necklace and the uh, third kingdom thing. You know, he says, I've heard about you. Um, you know, you've got this extraordinary spirit. Uh, verse 16, I personally heard about you, like this is impressing Daniel. Uh, now, if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you know, I'm going to give you the purple and the gold and all this. Verse 17, I love this. Daniel answered and said to the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to somebody else, you little punk. I added the little punk part. But you can kind of see it, can't you? You know, normally diplomats, they all, you know, you know, the diplomats are masters of uh, uh, worthlessness. They never say what they mean. There's all this polite. It always cracks me up on the news when these two guys that are at opposite ends of the spectrum are doing a press conference, and this one guy, they're on this huge issue and this huge uh, maybe moral issue in the Congress or the Senate or the, or the House, and this guy will say, well, my friend, my friend from the other side of the aisle, I want to say, what do you mean that sucker's your friend? Bad company corrupts good morals. What are you doing hanging out with that sucker? You ought to distance yourself. And by the way, I would appreciate your vote in November. No. I don't get that stuff. It's diplomatic stuff. It's diplomatic language, you know? Are you, are you guys get what I'm saying or did I just lose you? You know what I'm talking about. It's all these nicety stuff. You know what I like about Daniel? He cuts through all that. Dung. He says, hey, bozo, keep that stuff for yourself, you little twerp. <laughs> hey, Daniel's 80, 82. Hey, hey you, know what, you, know what, you know the problem with the young guys? They think they know it all. And they don't know snot. They haven't been around long enough. They don't have enough miles on the tires. They haven't been hurt. I remember having a discussion with a friend of mine I went to seminary with. We were in our... Uh, early 30s, and we were eating dinner, and we are just having a conversation about ministry, and he, he said, you familiar with that quote from A.W. Tozer? That quote where Tozer said, before God uses a man greatly, he will hurt him deeply? And I said, yeah, I've heard that quote. Before God uses a man greatly, he will hurt him deeply. And I remember saying, yeah, I'm not sure I buy that. You talk about stupid. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, God using you greatly, but I'll tell you something. He'll hurt you deeply. And I was about three months away from entering into one of the most painful periods of my life. Why? Because, you see, I was young, and I was stupid, and I was arrogant, and I'm pastoring a church. So what did God need to do with me? Oh, he needed to humble me. He needed to break me down. He needed to show me, well, he just needed to show me. And he did. He did. And he's done it to you, hasn't he? He has his ways. He has his methods. So he tries to induce Daniel, says, you know, Daniel says, look, keep your stuff. Verse 17, however, I'll read the inscription of the king, and I'll make the interpretation known to him. Now watch this. Hey, here's the other thing. Young guys... 
need to be reminded of history. Do you know why we study the Old Testament? Because it says in 1 Corinthians 10 that these things were written for our instruction. What things? Old Testament history. Why is it that, why, why is the Old Testament in there? Why is it we just don't have New Testaments? And I gotta tell you something. I, I mean, I think a case could be made that it's, you need to be careful. If you just got a New Testament, you better get the whole Bible. The Old Testament speaks of Christ. They go together. And there is history in the Old Testament that enables us right now. We are to learn from what happened in Old Testament history. Young guys tend to ignore history. Young guys tend to be ignorant of history. But the good thing about old guys is that they were around when history was being made. I remember as a little boy, uh, there, there was an old gentleman that lived next door to us when I was about seven years old. And uh, he was in his, uh, as I remember, he was in his late 90s. And, and he had been a conductor. No, no, no. He had been an engineer on a, uh, on, a, on a train. That's what he did his whole life. He lived with his daughter. He's a very tall man, uh, even very straight in his, in his 90s. And he would come out at least once a day, and his daughter would walk with him, and he'd walk down to the mailbox and get the mail, and he'd walk back. And that's usually the only time I saw him. But he always wore his overalls, his coveralls. And he wore his engineer cap. 97, 98, 99. Well, that was 1956. He was born um, before the Civil War. Maybe the old man that lived next door to him, when he was a boy, and who was the same age, Oh, he was born before the Revolutionary War. You know the neat thing about talking to older people? They can tell you stories of history that really happened. Daniel is about to school this guy in some history. Now watch this. He says, O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father, grandfather. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. Now watch this. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he, became, he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beast, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. That was the lesson that was taught to your ancestor. 22. Yet you... His descendant, yet you, his son, Belshazzar, watch this, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. That's the lesson. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. Watch this, watch this specific charge. 
They have brought the vessels of his house before you. You and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath, and all your ways you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Here we go, son. You want to listen up to this. Here's the interpretation which none of these guys can figure out. Listen up, you might want to take notes, here it comes. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, uparsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. There's the message. 29, then Belshazzar gave orders. They clothed Daniel with purple, put a necklace of gold around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom, and Daniel was so proud and happy. It doesn't say that, does it? Because he didn't give a wit because he knew what was going to happen. Oh, and what did happen? Verse 30, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. The page of history turned just like that. It was swift. It was quick. And there was no appeal. It was a slight thing in the hand of God. This is the God that we serve. He's a great God. He's a loving God. He's a compassionate God. He's a merciful God. I want to say something to some of you in here. If you've been screwing around with your faith, it's time to quit screwing around. It's time to either get in the ark or get out. It's time to either follow Christ or not follow him. I don't care if your grandpa was a preacher or if he started a college, and, and it, I'm talking about you. You know the truth? You've heard the truth all your life? You know these things? But you've been making excuses? Oh, you know, I grew up in the church. I saw all kinds of stuff. Man, there are hypocrites in the church. Yeah, that's right, and you're one of them. You're one of them. Every one of us is a hypocrite. Every single one of us. But you can't look at Christ and say he's a hypocrite. He's flawless. He's perfect. He's never broken a promise. You get your eyes off of people and get your eyes off on Christ. Well, I looked at that person disappointed. How many people have you disappointed? You get your eyes on Christ. You know, guys, we're living in some real serious times. Are we not? And if you've ever studied biblical prophecy and you never studied some of the prophecies in the last half of Daniel and then you put them together with Ezekiel and you put them together with Revelation, you know what? Things are starting to line up, are they not? Ever since Israel was established back in 48, we're on a new timetable. 
and you read some of those prophecies about how Russia and Iran start making alliances. That's never happened before in the history of the world. It's happening now. Is it not? I understand Netanyahu was in the White House yesterday. Haven't heard much about it, but I get the sense it didn't go real well. That ought to concern us. You know why it ought to concern us? Because this country has always supported Israel. You know why Israel exists? One of the reasons is that Harry Truman grew up in a home where he heard the word of God. And he had heard the prophecies as a young man that one day Israel would return to the land. And he just happened by chance to be president when it came across his desk. Just by chance. Never thought a thing about it. Signed off on it. He had all kinds of people upset. Oh, that's not correct. That's not politically astute. He didn't give a rip. He knew the word of God. He knew he wasn't there by accident. Signed off on it. They're back in the land. Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham. One of the things God said to him, those who honor you, them will I honor. And one of the reasons God has taken care of this nation is that we have supported that nation and the day we stop is the day the hand is withdrawn on us. And we're there. I'm just talking biblical prophecy here. That's all I'm talking. So these are serious times. It's time to follow Christ. It's time to put him first. It's time to love him and obey him and follow him. It's time to implement it. It's time to quit screwing around. I see two lessons in this for us today, personally. Number one, because these are hard times. These are difficult times. I'm encouraged, personally, because uh, I read last week the recession's over. I don't know if you saw that. Did you guys, how many of you guys saw that? Did you read that? I'd like to see your hands. Did you see that? Man, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm, I'm just encouraged. Actually, I'm not, neither are you. Why? Because we kind of get the sense that uh, it's just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. And it is. You know that. Anybody with a brain knows that. So we're in this thing. And you know what? We're probably going to be in it for a while. Okay. And we just had a banker up here tonight talk about how bankers are kind of big on getting repaid. On time. And you kind of get a sense that bankers aren't real big right now on renegotiating loans. Or even making new loans. You kind of get that sense, don't you? And maybe you're in a spot where you kind of need to renegotiate or you need to refinance and you're thinking, that's not going to happen. Well, what are you going to do? Well, you're in trouble. Unless you have a father that runs the world. So here's number one. Here's my first lesson I deduce from all of this for us today. Number one, whatever your circumstance, health, 
finances, future, kids, amen. Whatever your circumstances, it is a slight thing for the Lord. Is that not true? Mary had a conversation with someone this past week that she's been praying for for 30 years. And this person said to her, I told my son that where he is in life, he desperately needs Christ. And for 30 years, she hasn't even believed in Christ. And then she said to him, and I need Christ. We both need Christ. <laughs> I'm telling you, if you knew the story, that's, that's just flat out unbelievable. God just, you know what God did right there? He, 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 he turned a page of history in that woman's life. He turned a page. And, I, and quite frankly, if you had asked me a while back, I would have said, mm, I, don't, I don't think that one's going to happen. But can I tell you something, guys? It's a slight thing. It's a slight thing. Have you been praying for someone you dearly love for years and years and years and you've lost all hope? Can I tell you something? It's a slight thing for the Lord. It's a slight thing. You say, I don't think that's going to happen. I've been praying. Why? Well, I've been praying so long. and God, I don't see any movement. I, don't, I just, I don't see. It's a slight thing for the he just breathes. Hearts are changed. Whatever your circumstances. See, whatever circumstances, we cannot get hopeless because of who our God is. I don't, I, don't, I don't care where you are. I don't care what you're dealing with. God can change people's hearts. Can he not? God changes situations. God, God moves. God works. God takes care of his people. God provides a way. You say, well, I got this health issue. They tell me I'm terminal. We're all terminal. Years ago, I had a guy uh, in a conference. We did a question-answer period, and the guy raised his hand, sitting right over here. And the guy was in tears, and he said, I'm, I'm having a real hard time with the sovereignty of God because my two sisters in the same year got cancer. And both my sisters have died this year of cancer. And the guy was just weeping. And he said, and I prayed, and I asked God to heal my sisters. And he was really broken up. And I, and I said, now, I want to say something to you kindly, and I want to say it to you gently. But I want to say it to you. You asked God to heal your sisters. Did you not? He said, yes, I did. I said, your sisters have been healed. And he looked at me. I said, that's not what you wanted to hear. But are your sisters, let me ask you something, are your sisters in pain? Did they know Christ? Oh, yeah, they knew. Are your sisters in pain right now? He said, no then they've been healed. See, they were not healed the way you wanted them to be healed. You wanted them to be healed and remain on the earth with you forever how many years. But you know what? That's not how God chose to do it. God healed your sisters and God took them to heaven. By the way, it, it would, and, I, and I know your heart is broken, but, but you need to embrace this. 
it is somewhat selfish of you to wish that your sisters were back here because they would not wish to come back. You're wishing to rob them of the glory. Now, what you should long for, and I understand, please, I was trying to be kind to the guy, but I said, but please understand, that longing one day will be restored. You'll be with your sisters, but your sisters have been healed. Whatever your circumstances, it's a slight thing. Here's number two. Hey, can I ask you something else before we go on? Does that encourage you? Huh? Does that give you hope? Does it? Really? Even if this nation goes socialist? Is there hope? The handwriting's on the wall. Man, I can read it. I can see what's coming. Yeah, but who's your father? Who's running the show? Who's got a plan for the ages? Jesus does. <laughs> this is great stuff. It's just great stuff. And I forget it. I'm always forgetting it. So I always got to remind myself. And then I'm okay. Right? Here's number two. Until he changes your circumstances, make sure that your heart is humble before him. Let me say that again. Until he changes those circumstances, those circumstances that are negative, that are hurting you, that are bringing you down, that are weighing on you, that are putting great pressure on you, until he changes your circumstances, make sure that your heart is humble before him. Make sure that your heart is surrendered. Make sure that your heart is yielded. You know what that means? It means you're not angry. It means you're not mad. It means you're not putting God on the witness stand and interrogating him. You little punk. Right? And we're all punks. You don't do that with God. You know what you do with God? You humble yourself. You thank him that he gives you breath in your lungs to breathe. You thank you that he has given you the health that he has given you. You thank him that you, you, he has given you a mind to think. You thank him that he has given the spirit of God and opened up your dead spiritual eyes and he's given you a new heart in Christ. And, and, and you know what you do, guys? When, when, when you humble yourself, you know what you do? You get under the authority. You get under the mercy. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And at the right time, he'll exalt you. you. You know what our problem is? We want him to change things. When we want him to change things, do you know what the problem with that is? It's not the right time. We just want change. You take that any way you want it. I wasn't thinking about that, but I'll go with it. It's got to be, it's got to be his change in his way, in his time. D don't get off on that. You know what I'm saying, don't you? Don't look at anybody else. Look at him. You got that, don't you? So what do we do in the interim? 
wherever you're facing, whatever's going on here, what do you do? We humble, we surrender, we yield, we kneel, we bow. And we put our lives and our situation and our fears and our worry and anxiety and all this stuff. You know what we do? We just lay at his feet. And, and, and get this, we trust him. We trust him. I'm going to finish with this. Last 24 hours, I got two, e- two emails from two different guys in two different parts of the country. These two guys don't know each other. I'm not going to give you any details, except this. They were kind enough to send me an email telling me something about what God had recently done in their lives. And I got to tell you something. I read the first one, and, and I could hardly contain myself. And basically what it came down to was this guy had a situation in his life that was overwhelming him, and he couldn't handle and an area of sin. And you know what happened? He humbled himself. He went and confessed to a dear friend. And along with the dear friend, there was encouragement and there was prayer. And then went and talked with a family member. And when all that happened, you know what happened? There was forgiveness. There was release. He was set free. Everything has changed. Everything. Because he humbled himself. It reminded me of what I did years ago as a rookie preacher. I didn't want to do it, but I humbled myself. It's amazing how God works when we humble ourselves. How he works, how he heals. And then a couple hours later, I got, a, I got an email from another guy that basically told me the exact same story. Same sequence. Same stuff. I'd met him at a conference. He talked with me afterwards. He said, I wanted to follow up with you from eight months ago. And I remembered. Oh, yeah, I remembered. And he said, he, he, told me the first, he, he told me the same thing the guy in the first email told me. And the results were the same. And the release was the same. And the forgiveness and the healing. <sighs> what if Belshazzar had a humble himself? Would have been a different story. You see, guys, there's great wisdom in reading the handwriting on the wall, humbling yourself, and responding. There's great wisdom. Let's bow our heads. We humble ourselves, our great Father in heaven. What a great God you are. What a great Son you have. Thank you for your spirit that teaches us and puts the light on Jesus. Jesus said of the Spirit, when he comes, he will glorify me. We know the Holy Spirit is present when people are talking, not of the Holy Spirit, but of Jesus, because the Holy Spirit has come to glorify him. We humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus. We thank you for forgiveness of sin. We thank you for new life in Christ. We thank you for forgiveness among family members. We thank you for healing that takes place when confession takes place. 
what a great God you are. And Lord, it is a slight thing for you to heal. Hearts, homes, families, lives. We are blessed among men to know you. And we honor you tonight. In Jesus' name.